It's Friday, July 9th. You're listening to the Tech Breakfast Podcast, the show that brings you delicious tech news and all the hot takes you can handle with Tyler Gates. Russ, oh, Russ isn't on. Because <laughs> I was going to ask him <laughs> how to say his last name. <laughs> just can't well. On the last show. Uh, Instead can't of well. can't well, it's just can't well. Can't well, can't well. <laughs> okay, to me, that sounds exactly the same. It and, is not. Uh, and myself, Aaron Bewley. Paper towels? Um, <laughs> paper towels? Paper towels. Oh man. Halloween. On the on the Versus show. Halloween. <laughs> on the show with us today is the bunks. And uh how's it going, fellas? Great. Good morning. Good. Better now. Awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna have to talk with Russ on Monday on that one, I guess. I was dying laughing <laughs> listening to that when I got back into uh or out of the woods into service. And uh he was like just the fact that you caught that he pronounced he mispronounced his last name the way I mispronounced it, me not knowing that I was even mispronouncing it for years, years I've been saying his name that way. So I'm just gonna start calling him Canwell, I guess. Canwell, there you go. When I changed my name, I got a lot of that like Knutson versus Knutson because I have like a Norwegian heritage, but I took my wife's mm-hmm. last name. We got a ton of Knud. It's like, dude, it's a it's a T, not a D. You know? so. It's funny because that's a common last name too. Like, how do you yeah. not know Knutson at this point? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, this day in tech history. This is a fun one. This is a fun one. Donkey Kong and Mario's birthday today. What? You want to guess the year? You want to guess the oh, year? Oh, jeez. 80, 81. <laughs> that's it. 81. Are you kidding? Yeah, <laughs> I I felt strongly that Russ was going to nail the decade on this one, but I didn't. Yeah, okay, yeah. eighty-one, boom, nailed it. Yeah, so the uh, so that's forty years, forty years. Uh, so this is it's actually kind of interesting here, and I'm not sure too many people know this, but the game that launched it obviously was Donkey Kong. It was released for sale today, forty years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it was created by Nintendo. It was a Japanese playing card and toy company turned uh, fledgling video game developer who was trying to create a hit game for the North American market. And it goes on to say, unable at the time to acquire a license to create a video game based on the Popeye character, Nintendo mm-hmm. decides to create a game mirroring the characteristics and rivalry of Popeye and Bluto. I don't know that. <laughs> really? I, I did not know that. Yeah. No, I didn't know that either. That's that. awesome. No. That's, yeah, that's really cool. and so it goes on. Donkey Kong is named after the game's villain, a pet gorilla gone rogue. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's see. We got another person joining the show. Uh, Jeremy will join us here in just a second. But Donkey Kong is named after the game's villain, a pet gorilla gone rogue. The game's hero is originally called Jumpman, but is retroactively renamed Mario once the game becomes popular and Nintendo decides to use the character in future games. Did y'all know that? Uh, I knew a good chunk of it, but not yeah, I knew bits and pieces, not, not all Popeye. of it. Yeah, not all hmm. of it. That's awesome. So there's a book called Range. Really good book, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, read it. And they actually get into the Nintendo story quite a bit. Uh, so like it starting as a card company and stuff like that was actually uh, not news to me. But it's a super yeah. interesting story and I highly recommend digging into it, specifically from Range too, because it talks a lot about what it was that made um, Nintendo ultimately stand out from their perspective, you know, looking at it from a, a viewpoint where it wasn't hyper-specialized and that sort of stuff. So pretty cool. Yeah, very That's cool. awesome. Big, good one to follow is Nintendo is, you know, selling more units. Obviously there's chip processor, you know, issues, redesigns, the PS5, all that kind of stuff. But while they've stumbled due to hardware, Nintendo's gained just 
it feels like exponential market share. It's like you're back to the days of the Super Nintendo. So interesting one to follow up from history and loop back around and see what they're doing. Yeah. I did not know, too, that uh, Kong is common Japanese slang for gorilla. That's another fun fact yeah. there. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. How you doing, dude? I'm doing well. Thanks for the uh, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Awesome. Uh, we were just talking about how uh, today's the 40th birthday of Donkey Kong and Mario's birthday. That was today's uh, tech history bit. <laughs> I also was unaware that Kong was Japanese slang for gorilla. So you learn something new every day. Appreciate it. Did you Did you know? I have to ask you this. You You jumped on right after I got past this. But did you know that um, that it would that what they were initially trying to do was license Popeye, and they were unable to do it. So they created these two characters, um, basically mirroring the rivalry between Popeye and Bluto. I did not know that, but my life is better now that I do. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so taking inspiration and, and, and making projects with it, I just got to say, like, if that's your inspiration and you're going from spinach, how did you get to mushrooms? That, that one is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you may have answered your own question. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, what are y'all seeing in the news? Don't let me start or I'll just keep going. You guys go first. <laughs> <laughs> I could jump right in and talk about how Charles Hoskinson has joined the uh, Ethereum Classic Board of Directors if you want to get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, uh, Tyler is texting. He just got a call he has to take. <laughs> Tyler's gone. Jeremy, thanks for showing up. But yeah, dude, what are you, what are you seeing? What was the news? I mean, it was it dropped last night that um, it, he joined the, uh, the Board of Directors for Ethereum Classic, which is, it's super interesting. I mean, I... Full disclosure, I, I got into Ethereum Classic on the coattails of your podcast, I guess it was a couple of months ago. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to the community and have just been voraciously reading and, and watching a lot of content around it. It's really interesting to me. So, I mean, I know he's a, he's a figure that has supported the idea of a treasury within ETC and that in and of itself can be a polarizing topic. So it's just, it's just really interesting to see sort of like at this moment, what is going to take place. You know, there's, there's, Obviously, people that are for or against the Treasury and, um, you know, with, with Hoskinson's involvement with Cardano, there's just a lot of interesting sort of conversations circling around. And, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very interested to see what develops here. Likewise, it looks to be uh, pretty interesting. And I didn't realize when that news came out, I didn't realize, too, that Barry Silbert uh, was already on the board. Barry, obviously, uh, runs Grayscale Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, Bonks, are you, in, uh, are you into the crypto scene at all? Yeah, Jen runs all that though. So I focus on stocks and she focuses on crypto. So um, I feed her a lot of the info, you know, as I'm kind of researching 80 years ahead for guys to pick up a lot of how encryption is going to, you know, change things. So I follow a lot of like um, Singularity DAO and where Ethereum and Cardano kind of comes into play there, why they left Ethereum, why they went into Cardano, and why everything is going into a basic utility unit and you know this i mean he's very very sharp he you know contributes to sophia and hansen robotics and everything like that so you've got uh, gertzel is is um fascinating guy to get away from the the money aspect of it and look at how crypto will change the world potentially under other people's visions so i bring okay. all the fancy and <laughs> yeah so it sounds like you do dabble in it a little bit you just said like three or four things that i hadn't heard of before so i, I know what a DAO is um, right, a decentralized autonomous organization. Did I get that right? What is a Singularity DAO? Singularity DAO is a company that Gertzel, oh, okay. um, you know, he's, he's got to be one of the top 10 AI scientists in the world. However you want to define that, somebody's going to take issue with that, whatever. But brilliant mind, you know, designed Sophia, 
uh, or participated in that with Hanson Robotics and is very close to that project. And that's how I linked up with them, watching Sophia go into the medical space and become Grace in the last couple of days. You know, they've been announcing the rollout of 9,000 Grace units for medical. They, they, they switched from, you know, focusing on human interaction to directly helping medical uh, needs uh, based on the pandemic and remote um, people that are, you know, taking care. So through robotics, I came up into this concept um, of the Singularity DAO and how they envision the future. And it doesn't just change the monetary system. You're talking about what do, how do we build a system that supports the singularity? And so it's really fascinating stuff. And, and you know, the underpinning of it was Ethereum and it moved to Cardano. And I was kind of curious, why are those, you know, I know the social contract piece and all that, but what were the main reasons? So I started following a bunch of his, the Singularity DAO and on YouTube and all their videos. And yeah, it's fascinating. Um, but the okay. investment side is a little rich for me. Okay. So I need to hear again, the name and better understand who you're talking about there. And then this Singularity DAO, sorry, you've got me. I love conversations with you, man. Uh, you always drop like five or six things in every everything that you share that is then going to send me off on like a three hour, <laughs> three hour tour of, uh, of what this stuff is. So um, who are you talking about? And then is the Singularity DAO, maybe this one's faster and easier to answer. Singularity DAO, you said that's a company. Uh, if I go to their website, it just says AI-powered uh, DeFi, so decentralized finance portfolios. Is that just recognizing that we get closer to the singularity uh, of, of AI and trying to mix that with the concept of DAO? Is that what that is? Ben Gertzel, um, CEO of Singularity Net, and the, I think the product is more appropriately named Singularity DAO. And the reason I came to it is, is he's, he's one of the researchers of a handful that I follow that are very focused on how humans are going to adapt to the intelligence explosions and singularity and trying to get in front of that, you know, playing that role where people shame you and talk to you about how dystopian you are and all that. Um, unfortunately, you know, you got a lot of people that get that stigma as they're trying to build up a system that would work when entire economics are up, you know, upheaval of everything. If you, if you follow exponential um, material science, data science and other, you know, realms that more and more scientists are now starting to speak up and saying, we're going to have exponential change here. Uh, if you're Jensen and you run NVIDIA, you've now coined the term super exponential change, right? So it's uh, it's something that I follow to figure out on the uh, digital contract side because a lot of uh, artificial intelligence futurists, if you will, um, don't believe that we can tie things together without a single compute language and a single currency. Humanity can't come together in the long term uh, through the change without those underpinnings. So focus a lot on, you know, Python, will it tie classical and quantum together as a single language? Could it elevate? I got to make all these predictions, if you will, and put them as flashbacks in the book for the AI talking to Celine and giving her, you know, past things. So that's, that's where I focus around crypto in a very odd way. Sorry, it's probably a rabbit trail. No, it's Fascinating, man. Um, and Jeremy, I don't know if, if you've met Kurt. Um, you probably have listened to maybe an episode or two that he's been on. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, he said it himself. He's always trying to research. It sounds hilarious, but it's true, you know, 80 years into the future. <laughs> and so it's also funny to me that, um, you know, that, that, well, it's, it's cool that you would, uh, that you would split, basically you feed um, what you research to uh, to Jen, your wife, and then she goes and makes decisions based on the data that you give her around yeah. uh, whether or not or how you play the, the crypto market. But 
Yep. It's hilarious. anxiety and stress. I mean, what you're doing is gambling on your future in a lot of ways. You're seeing an upheaval, a moment of either renaissance. I mean, you have huge economic capabilities in either renaissance or in you know dystopian views of crashes and things like that. And so understanding where the tools are to build back, um, you know, frankly, it's kept me operating. I haven't worked in two years working through mental health stuff. So their ability to invest in crypto and and the stock and very easily see technologists can, I mean, they're always gambling, but you can very easily see if you're reading, you know, 20, 30 hours a week of research for your graphic novels, um, you can pretty easily see the trends and where they go. Then just diversify, make sure you got at least 10 companies that are focusing on 5G and, and then find one or two that, you know, ours was NVIDIA and Tesla and knew something was going to happen. And it's paid scientists, I'm sorry, paid artists a lot of money, all of our funding, you know, from Tesla goes straight to the artists on the project. So we're very wrapped up in the odd ways of, you know, the crypto and the market and things like that. That's awesome. Jeremy, any yeah. thoughts on that? I, I was, I've just been listening. And so, yeah, Kurt, I've heard you speak a lot, but nice to have a chance to interact with you. And I was just thinking, you know, with anything like that, you know, crypto stocks, all of it, I always just think about, you know, what, what your, your allocation looks like and how you're diversifying out. Like I, you know, I, I consider, my crypto investments speculative, um, and that's a portion of my investment portfolio. But you know, I, I, uh, I think that the the mistakes that people can make with is with regard to crypto and how you're looking at that is when people go like all in, they're looking for like the next big thing or like some yes. an ICO just coming yes. out, and they're like, you know, I'm just gonna this this coin to the moon or whatever, and I'm just gonna put everything into yep. it and see how it goes. And you see people get so hurt and beat up over that, and it's just like I know. these you got it. We're so early still in the space, and it's just recognizing that you know as far as like what your risk tolerance is and what that looks like in your overall investment portfolio and making sure that you're you're just being smart about it. But I, I think there's tons of opportunity. There's also just like, because, you know, you hear the term wild, wild west is, you know, referring to crypto and it's true. And like, I know that, you know, Aaron, you were talking about the news. I know there's like, you know, recent talk about SECs looking to, you know, potentially regulate crypto. And that's a persistent topic of conversation, what that looks like. And, you know, who knows how it's all going to pan out. But I think that it's just about being smart with what you're, the, the investments you're making and, you know, investing what you are you know comfortable with um and where and allocating yeah. it responsibly right yes and, and accepting in some ways the wild west nature of it and that you're gambling you know and 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 try to have a mentor a second person to ping ideas off of like i have a super unique situation and that a lot of my ability to support my family is diminished you know um and so i had to come up with ideas to be able to support this family for the the length of care that professionals told me it was going to take to get over complex trauma. And I feel comfortable talking about that now, but talking about the crypto piece or, or stock investment, things like that, that is by no way advice to anybody. Um, I had 15 years loving learning about the future, looking at things, saying, oh, I should have done that. And this, this history of, God, if I would have done that, if I would have done that, if I would have invested more in Apple. And the look to the future has never been about a financial asset. It's been about what's going to happen to humanity but it turns out to be a great way to research the human trends that take a longer term focus to where the, the economy goes, right? You have mass scale yeah. starvation might be a good idea to look into vertical farms and that's dystopian stuff, but like try reading what I consume 20 to 30 hours a mm. week and you got to flip it all to some form of utopia. We take a, a focus on 2099 looking back and, and training a young child who, you know, is Gaia's daughter, her job is to work with the, the AGI and basically balance technology on earth. And so what we're doing is we're looking back to 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050, those ranges where everything kind of exploded and talking 
about how we solved it, never really focusing the children on mass scale cyber attacks and you know all these different things, focusing on this happened, world went dark for three days, that according to FEMA and everybody else is about how long it takes till we kill each other when there's like no sense of hope you know, of things coming back. And that brought the world together to create an AGI. So what I'm trying to do is like constantly listen to the Max Tegmarks, the Eric Benjolfson, you know, Kai-Fu Lee, there's a dozen of them that are just so hopeful for where this te- these technologies can take us. So anyway. it's fascinating to hear you say that you look back on 2030 and 2040 when everything quote exploded, right? Which it helps me come you. away from what's going on right now, Aaron. Sorry, I interrupted. But no, that's that's true. I, I, you know, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, coming away from where everything is right now, you know, your mind lives in the future. But that also yep. echoes the truth that all all of this, all these conversations are so young in uh, yep. in where any of this stuff is at. There's so much left to figure out, right? Yep, they're absolutely only scratching the surface. Right? Only the like, surface. If and I, if you write... all intents and purposes, good. Yeah. Well, no, just like the internet was just invented, right? <laughs> it's basically where we're at in the timeline. Yep. Right. So the where do you, revolutions I revolutions were, were, were minutes ago in the, yes. in the TVA timeline, right? So we're in the, <laughs> in the TVA revolution. Your, your own CEOs, I don't know where Jeremy works, but I know your guys' CEOs, they've already publicly announced the fourth industrial revolution. Government still won't. Government won't put a plan in place. Like what industrial revolution ever led to the next 10 years being good for people? And yet there's no plan. So yes, we are, we are, um, when you, when you read Future Proof and Kevin Roos goes through talking to both the technophile, both sides, the technological optimism, pessimism spectrum in business. And he talks about, you know, the boomer, the famous boomer remover content uh, that he talks about is he's walking down the hall and each of the meeting rooms are named after industrial revolutions. And then they walk into the fourth industrial. Anyway, I don't want to ruin it for everybody. But yeah, maybe <laughs> we're in the middle of mass scale change. I call them small intelligence explosions. I know a lot of what I do would anger PhD. I call them FUDs, right? I worked at NASA <laughs> the first part of my career. Well, I supported 53 FUDs when I was 19 to 23 years old. My start sure. in IT, this guy's had multiple rocket science degrees at the lab. We were working at the Alaska Satellite Facility. You know, these brilliant people all around me, but boy, I'm going to get in trouble. Turning on a coffee maker could be hard sometimes, right? And so <laughs> you, get to, you get to feel how FUDs work and what they think of and how they get offended if you're not super scientific. And so I got to premise everything with, I'm not spinning something here. I'm not grifting. I'm literally writing a transmedia story across a board game, a Game Boy game and a graphic novel seven volumes, they all mirror each other. And I have 20 data science topics that are basically YouTube videos that we're you know, partnering with right now. So it's, yeah. it's around education, it's around inspiration. When you tell kids quantum computing stuff, their eyes cross half the time. But if you can bring some sci-fi into it, if you can talk about the quantum workforce and what they're doing and how exciting that career could be, what's better? Michio Kaku, his famous comment, he was all scientists in, in junior high. Why do you think we're focused on nine to 13 age set, you know? Huh. Yeah. So if you look at this timeline, right, and some of the conversation we just got into, and people may be tired of hearing about cryptocurrency or having a conversation and all that kind of stuff. But when you're looking back on it from the future, what do you see it or what does it feel like even right now that it mirrors what we've already experienced in the Internet age or in any sort of revolution in history? Yeah. So so the way I wrap it together, unified compute is different. A common language, but unified currency. Um, I listen to your guys to show a lot and try to, you know, wrap in the human element, listen to other sources around crypto. And what we've kind of come to 
is basically through 2030 and into 2040, um, other factors, let's not go rabbit trail like I do, but all these other environmental factors, not literally global warming, but just environmental factors cause such a mass scale border crisis, excuse me, with refugees, lack of water, desertification that's happening right now, water wars coming in a few years. And so what happens is people are moving around so much citizenship becomes questionable. Look at Battlefield 2042, their intro video they released a few weeks ago is there's a super effing dystopian and I'm trying to stay away from all that. But Battlefield 2042 kind of tells the story of mass scale human exodus moving around trying to find water and food and basic essentials. That creates the need for a common global currency, right? And then AGI comes in and, you know, all of it goes away, right? When an AGI comes in in a benevolent dictator mode or protector god mode, they essentially, they're, they're, they're elevated to a decision-making capability that doesn't take any significance into race, religion, all these different things that are causing us such contention right now. You know, the focus yeah. is just get humans to survive, relocate them away from sea lines, as you know, the cities are destroyed. So it's dystopian stuff, but you get to come back and inject positive things, hopefully, into it. You know, uh, artificial general intelligence uh, for anyone listening and wondering what AGI is. So, Jeremy, I'm curious, what's your take on it? Whenever you look at what's happening and where we're at, just you know, since we're kind of running through a bunch of this stuff, but you uh, you brought up this you know this news around uh, Charles Hoskinson. And I'll, where do you I'll sit in that? I'll back it out a little bit, just, you know, thinking about, you know, I know, uh, Kurt, you were talking about just sort of like a common global currency. And I think aside from just the currencies, it's really like what the platform of blockchain represents. And, you know, to me, like, you know, Aaron, your question about what recent, you know, technological trends would you like into it really, it feels like the internet to me, like, you know, the, you know, I was, I was in college when the internet dropped before I was in college, but I remember I was, I was just sharing with you, you know, I spent my sophomore and junior year in university, like writing, you know, HTML code and publishing websites for, for, you know, local businesses. And there was, it was, it was like the wild west back then, you know, and, and, you know, back in the late nineties and the early aughts when, you know, the internet economy was raging and then dropped the bottom dropped out of it. There was, there was so much sort of boom and bust and like, you know, but the, the winners out of that period became the Googles, the apples right of, of today. And I feel like we're in that, that sort of technological adolescence again, now with cryptocurrency and not even just from a currency perspective, but what, what will be built on this this platform, this infrastructure of blockchain, right? And there, there, you know, there's thousands of coins out right there. But if you look at the top 50, you know, you can assume that you know those those are going to be you know the ones that emerge out of the out of the shuffle. And what what will those platforms enable that can be built upon it from a layer one, layer two sort of you know infrastructure? That's really interesting to me. You know, even global currency, you know, aside, like what what will be built on those platforms? And I know Ethereum. In particular, you know, with NFTs and, and DeFi, there's there's so much that is being built on Ethereum now. But I don't even think we we don't even know what the what 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 will the those breakout you know DApps be. I mean, I think that we're it's we're so new, it's so young. You know, even though we've been you know it's been ten years since Bitcoin dropped, but like I, I think we still don't know what it's going to be. And so it's just really interesting to me um, just to be in that inquiry right now and and just like actively investigating what what those opportunities are. Yeah, uh, we're having quite the uh, quite the interesting <laughs> recording today. We lost Tyler, and then we just lost Bunks. Uh, so don't don't leave me, Jeremy. Or if you're going to, <laughs> let me know, and I'll just end the show. <laughs> so now it's just you and me. But you just said something too, and uh, you said the word DApps. Like it just kind of you know rolled out of your vocabulary. I would bet probably ninety nine point nine percent of our listeners who are even in the technology realm maybe not even know what, what a DAP 
concept, like what the concept of the DAP even is. Uh, oh, looks like Kurt is coming back. I will uh, bring him back in. But what are your thoughts on the potential there? Or, or when you say DAP, what do you think? Right? Or what do, what do you think the potential is and all that kind of stuff? I mean, to be honest, and it's, it's also new, it's I'm not going to, you know, try to answer that completely. But I mean, just to answer your question, literally a DAP is it's a decentralized application, right? So cryptocurrency, right. by definition, you're talking about, you know, like, for example, Ethereum Classic, which is a, it's a proof of work based blockchain where it's, it is, it's decentralized. There's not one point with which you're controlling, you know, the activities that are taking place on the blockchain. It's, it's decentralized. So a DAP, you know, a decentralized application, it's, it's a computer application that runs on a distributed computing system like Ethereum Classic, like like Bitcoin is a, is a um, you know, another decentralized computing uh, blockchain. So you know, it's really like you know it's looking at how looking at the blockchain which is a, it's a public ledger that's you know constantly being validated um, through proof of work consensus models what what are the applications that you could potentially build on top of that as an infrastructure you know and we were talking yesterday I think just about like the idea of like you know maybe maybe you know what would make sense to to leverage a system like that and you know we talked about like like for example real estate transactions you know you have escrow if you if you are entering into a real estate transaction you're you're putting money you know into an escrow account that is then held you know by a third party until certain things take place you know the walkthrough takes place and you know the every in the the transactions completed at which point those escrow funds are released by the attorney usually as a third party to the the seller you know that can be done on a on uh, using a smart contract on a, on ethereum right so it's the idea is like how what are all those those different applications that different i mean there's so many different use cases that could t- potentially leverage a a decentralized computing application like that blockchain to just to uh i guess simplify or streamline processes that we know about today but also open up possibilities that we haven't even thought about like i don't even know what is possible leveraging this platform which is so interesting you know when i again when i was um when i was writing html code as a university student, I was, you know, I wasn't even thinking about B2B commerce. I was thinking about B2C commerce. You know, B2B wasn't even in my awareness as something that you could you could execute on the internet because it was so young. And now we don't even think about it. Just, all these transactions are taking place by the second. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting to just ask a question, Jeremy. Yeah. The RSA conference and their whole tweet they put out that sparked all sorts of, you know, not outrage, but the concept of an internet run on the blockchain. That's supposed to be some big topic they're going to be talking about at the new RSA conference. Do you have you studied blockchain technology enough to understand potentially the application of uh, at scale of the internet or a new internet? Obviously, there's the quantum internet already being created right now, but like thoughts on that? I haven't. Um, I'll, I will just. I'm, I'm very happy to put my hand up and say that you've reached the limit of my depth. I, I haven't studied um, studied that, but you know, it's it's interesting. I was. You know, I was a computer science major in college, which was 20 years ago, you know, so I, I know a lot about programming languages, but the idea about the, you know, comp sci majors today are taking classes in blockchain, you know, I just, I'm, I'm so excited to see what is coming out of, you know, the young people today that are studying blockchain is just like a, a yes. core requisite for, you know, going to school. Yes. I was yes, studying auto you know, ML, auto yeah. ML now <laughs> being required. Like everybody, I heard MIT made the requirement every, no matter what you're studying here. You have to start with machine learning your first year. Like, you know, we're in that mode of auto creation and human people, autodidacts maybe, or just humans that that care to dabble in data science being given tools. And a lot of people are saying that's scary, but I think it's exciting. It's so cool. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to the, the the core requirements when I was a comp sci major. Like, you know, forget machine learning. I was taking machine language. Right. It's very different ML. And so mm-hmm. it's just, it's just very cool to you know think about 
what is going to be coming in the next, you know, 10 years. It's just super exciting. It is. It's, it's both exciting and, and scary. And if, but if you can frame it, you know, if you have enough uh, search Google foo to be able to go out and, and find the people that are screaming the utopian stuff as well, so, you know, just tired of the flood of dystopia, um, but you have to wade through dystopia to talk about utopian ideas and why they're necessary too. So it's, it's a very difficult realm to absorb yourself into the futurism around, you know, singularity and artificial intelligence and things like that. And I think it's like any, I mean, you can, I mean, this is probably way oversimplifying, but it, it's a tool, right? I mean, you can talk about a tool like programming yeah. and so it can be used one way or another, and you can yeah. take that, you know, a gun one way or right. another. And the more crude the tool, the less understanding is required to master it, right? Like a knife, you can do a limited amount of damage, you know, a certain amount of training, gun, programming, all the way up the, you know, the value chain, I suppose, to like, you know, you can really do a lot of damage with a lot of understanding. But I think it's really about how we use these tools, right? And, uh, and so... Yep. How we, how we integrate with them. Cobotics. I hope the term robot like disappears or is properly applied to, you know, things. Right. But understanding that leveraging RPA, uh, leveraging all sorry, robot process automation, leveraging any form of automation, take the, the constellation of technologies that are AI out of the equation and just talk about cobotics. Right. And if you look at the majority of the content coming from utopian people right now, in different ways, whether it's the human AI labs at uh, Stanford or Future Proof or anything that I've been looking at, the focus is on, it's really cool because it's on humanity. It's on making humans, if you look at the nine recommendations in Future Proof, like almost all of them are enhance your emotional intelligence, enhance all these things that robots can't do. Sad part is in my state, the EI is really tough and you know I can, I can get where if you're not articulate, and not steady and, and you know, don't have social uh, anxiety issues, things like that, it's going to be a very challenging world moving forward. And that's why I focus a ton around neurodiversity. And, you know, when we have my children work with GPT-3 to write the books, not just me, they're having the AI write it in their way before we push it to a ghostwriter so that we can get neurodiverse ideas out and just have an understanding how difficult some of this stuff can be for people to go into the spotlight. Like in the communities that I not run in, but research and I'm involved with. This pandemic has been excellent for, for people that are, are not social creatures, right? The, the ability to stay inside and work and, and, and thrive potentially has been great for some. So anyway, tangent, sorry. So no, this is absolutely fascinating. So as I, like, let me try to pull two of these things together. So we talked a little bit about um, decentralized applications, right? Mm -hmm. Which are essentially applications that don't belong to anybody. Um, they're community driven. That's the decentralized piece, and then it just being an application um, that you know is is uh, serving or storing data and connecting kind of peer to peer peer to peer concept. And then you just mentioned robotic process automation, um, which yeah. I had not looked at, or maybe I've heard of, but I haven't looked into. So robotic process automation is a form of business process automation technology based on metaphorical software robots or an artificial intelligence slash digital workers, uh, software robotics. I, I haven't heard of this. So how, how is a software robot different from like a, uh, a smart contract on a decentralized application? Or is that even a fair question? Ooh. <laughs> um, boy, let me think about this for a second. So RPA to me feels like everything that falls through the colander. Right, it feels like everything that's not big and pretty. It's like digging in a gold. I'm sorry, from Alaska. You know, putting your pan in a gold stream and trying sure. to basically filter out the gold and get all the stuff that falls through. 
it's Excel macros. It's, um, I had a lot of friends who work for UiPath, right? So the unicorn that's, uh, you know, it's going to be the new Slack against Microsoft. If you went to the Microsoft conferences, you saw, you know, a lot of their announcements are auto, auto, auto I'm sorry, automate, automate, all their, you know, products that they're putting out have automate yeah. in front or behind them because of GPT-3 and their, you know, their exclusive investment in open AI's capabilities, yeah. they own it all. And so they, and we they saw GitHub's are, co-pilot and all that, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And they're pushing yep. into RPA right now, but Microsoft is the slow one to the boat. And so I think my interest in RPA is very specific to how many friends and people that I know working for like UiPath and Microsoft around it. And so I'm a little jaded of the greater ecosystem of RPA, but I like to think of it as everything you can automate that falls through the sexy trap. <laughs> Not sexy, just okay. good. Okay. And it's around cobotics too. It's around a lot of the, the things that I've seen in RPA is train the employees. These aren't technologies. They imply cobotics. They're not taking your job. This isn't, you know, will robot take my job.com kind of stuff. It is basically <laughs> you have professional. I love using that. It's my favorite site. I love I love getting people to get out of it. When I hear that, robot. Let me look that up. That actually exists. Oh. I'm, oh I'm doing God, the same it gives thing you right the percentages. Now. It gives you everything. It gives you labor details. I had a person online, um, 43, this is my last career, you know, and my, my comments weren't great. Uh, the concept of a career is gone, right? So like we're in the lifelong learning mode where you're learning new skills all the time and automation is uh, taking your old ones, right? But Will but Robots, wondered, it's willrobotstakemyjob.com. There we go. Yeah, yeah. We'll put okay. yours through there. Put through a director or put through a product manager. Just, you know, I, I know just clicked random. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just clicked random and it came up uh, massage therapist, 54%. So does that, <laughs> I mean, that, that means more than likely robots will take yeah. over massage oh, therapy. Oh, it's way more than that. Read down. It gives you statistics. It tells you, it gives you the labor codes of what massage breaks down into and each of the percentages for each of them. This is not meant to scare you. The majority of people I talk to, um, their job comes back. And there's obvious ones like burger flippers. Have you seen Flippy? Have you seen kiosks? Like there's super obvious ones. But when you're down to people that are in like fintech and medtech, I mean, talk about the fear of whatever yeah. coming, right? When you got Amazon, <laughs> Apple, and Google coming after your marketplace, you know? <laughs> this yeah. is a fascinating website. So I just hit random again, and it gave me uh, bill and account collectors, 95%. <laughs> Automation <laughs> risk level, you are doomed, it says. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it gives you projected growth. So down 6% by 2024. It says as of 2016, there were almost 300,000 people employed in this. The median annual wage was $35,000 or you know $17 an hour. Uh, this is fascinating, man. Yeah. I use it a lot to calm people. I send them private links and say, hey, just check this out, You know, calm down a bit. But now I can talk about it more freely because the biggest swaths of cuts, if you read Kai Fuli and a lot of other you know, futurists, and, and you know, he was the president of Google, China, Apple, uh, heavy role in Apple creating their first natural language processing, right? And, and ran Google Microsoft, or Microsoft China. This guy knows his stuff. And basically he said, all the swaths are in our field. He said, the next, next big cuts with the site are gonna be in development, developers, and, and people who don't embrace copotics where their job is easily automatable, the code that they create and what they do, bug checking, whatever, like all those people need to be working with humans, which is a scary concept to be talking to, you know, maybe traditional developers about, right? Cave trolls or whatever, right? Yeah. Backend database guys, like that's really <laughs> cave trolls. To to well, it's tough to say <laughs> your human traits are going to be what's going to keep your job in 10 years. You know, that's, yeah. that's not something people want to hear when they're cert 
needs to be re up for their CCIE or something, you know? Well, I, well uh, I'll riff on that. Welders, Sorry, go welders ahead, are doomed, but first line supervisors of mechanics, installers, and repairs have only a 0.3%. Yes, politicians, totally safe. teachers, politicians, teachers, and supervisors are at the very top of the list. Every single day you are negotiating with, um, uh, how would you put the data? Dirty data. <laughs> let's, let's just name humans as dirty data, right? Sure. I think I, interrupt, I interrupted Jeremy on something. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good. I was while you guys were talking, I was just entering professions into this website that I can tell you right now I'm going to spend way too much time playing with later today. But um, so I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I randomized a couple of times and that was interesting. I entered my job as a marketing manager that came back at 1.4%. So I feel pretty good about my future yep. employment. But then um, I, I entered my former position, which was an entrepreneur. And that came back as a, a Google whack. I got nothing on that. So good uh, good note there. You know, if you have an idea and you're passionate about it, you have a job in the future because robots will not replace you. Creativity, guys. Um, the reason I chose to take this healing path and create Bifrost is because I believe we're at a crossroads of enabling creativity and very locked away minds. I think GPT-3 and GPT-4 and Dolly are going to be my best tools. If I can scale this business to go into classrooms like I used Oh, sorry. What's Dolly is OpenAI released Dolly um, months and months and months ago, but it's not able for or you're not able to access it for you know quite, I guess citizen consumption for a little while longer. And I use shortlyread.ai for a, for a front end to GPT three, and so I've been hammering on those guys to integrate Dolly. Dolly oh, takes is Dolly NLP. the imaging yeah images from text. It's, so we generate all of our text out of scripts and edit it and work back and forth with AI. Our next focus is to literally, before we hand that script off to the ghost writers and editors uh, to make it more human consumable outside of maybe coming from people on the spectrum, um, we basically uh, want to run it through concept art phase. Because then once a script writer who's tuning it has a script that's run through an, uh, a concept art generator and given a hundred different ideas, and we'll curate them. Don't like that, don't like that, like those 50 pass it on, then you've prepped the artist for what's coming next, right? So we're trying to cut our time to market. We're, we're doing about three or four graphic novels a month, um, but that's the easy part. That's the GPT-3 part. The artists, oh my God, like, holy cow. It's, I never assumed how much oh, okay. time it takes to do that. Yeah, okay, I remember Dolly now. I, I saw this in the news with the, um, where you put a text prompt in the example, the two examples that I saw that were hilarious. Uh, one, an illustration of a baby daikon radish in a tutu walking a dog. Uh, and then <laughs> there's some fantastic uh, furniture design possibilities here with the next one. An armchair in the shape of an avocado. And it produces some pretty <laughs> incredible results. <laughs> yes, that was the famous one, the big avocado thing that hit the web. So yeah, so yeah who knows? Maybe maybe Microsoft will snarf up Dolly as well, like they did with GPT-3. But um, GPT-3 is still open to, you know, civilians. They just have this, whatever the, the rights around it. So I think Dolly's headed for the same path and it's going to cut a lot of time down for me without cutting human employment. We have yet to unemploy anybody. And we've got half of our writers embracing shortly read AI. They're, they're working with it on their own as well. So good stuff. Nice. Very cool. Okay. Um, I've had you guys on the show for a while. I don't want to consume all your afternoon here on a Friday. Is there anything else y'all want to touch on or talk about? Anything else you want to share with the uh, with the audience? Jeremy, you want to go first? I got a I big one. I, if you've got a big one, I'll let you go because nothing is. I'm, I'm to be honest. I'm now looking at a, a, a daikon wearing a tutu and an avocado shaped chair. So I will let you go first, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Um, you know, I wanted to come in and talk just a little bit of quantum, and so. Okay. Um, 
what would be the, I'm trying to think in my mind, scan for the most pertinent. And I, I, I make it in relation to my story. So I'll, I'll try to go super quick. Um, we have a quantum story. Computing. When you quantum, say quantum everything. Quantum okay. every, well, not quantum everything, but quantum lots of things. So in our, in our uh, GPT-3 uh, graphic novel script that we passed off, we have the concept of a young neurodiverse child, having a, a you know, girl, boy, whatever. Uh, we haven't assigned that yet. But basically, the child gets, uh, or the family gets a new computer. And if you follow the trends right now, QPUs, quantum processing units, the ability to offload from classical onto quantum, Python, whatever, as we move away from the need for cryostats and atomic level uh, quantum computing, and we've got to photonic and other methods, we are looking at the mass scale manufacturing of simple chips that are going to go into our computers. I think the first application of that is going to be the quantum internet. The internet's going to get so dangerous and scary and unsafe once, especially once encryption is sliced through with quantum computing, but that's here nor there. I mean, there's many people that say it'll never happen. Other people say it'll be a blink of an eye when it happens. Point is, post-quantum encryption is a huge topic. Quantum internet is a huge topic. And quantum and classical interchange for how we offload and handle things. So the concept of these three acronyms, QPU, um, and well, I don't need to go through them all, but the point is, I try to mix those three together to spark some quantum um, desire. So this child figures out its own language of nature to talk to the card. The card has an API. The kid is very savantish and basically figures out a nature language, right? Quantum is the, the language of nature. So he figures out a different way to talk to it that unleashes the qubits, right? The amount of computing that can be in somebody's hands if they could unlock it in the future it's going to be massive. Your home router that connects to the quantum internet could have a processor chip that could answer most questions. Every question is computable as the goal of quantum, but at a small qubit level, that's not, you know, watch yeah. devs on Hulu, right? So the, the point is, is this child grows up and he creates the first AGI and it's his companion and his friend. There's a very, very Pulitzer Prize author just wrote a book about a young child, you know, growing up with a robotic assistant. And it really touched my heart. And I shot it off. I always send all the things I read to my, my uh, script writers and tell them what's coming from GPT-3. And it really sparked interest across the writers. We have a couple of different focuses and a couple of different writers working on it. But the graphic novel, the concept is, is the AGI never leaves the boy. It doesn't escape through the internet, the girl, whatever. It doesn't escape through the internet and try to take over the world. It's, it's a whole different approach to thinking about a Skynet, right? And so AGI sits with this boy, girl, whatever, growing up and basically learning humanity at um, a very low level, evolving through the, the life cycle of a, of, a, you know, of a human long gestation period and then better understanding humanity so it can support it better, right? So that's where we're trying to focus is in this, I think quantum is one of the bigger things that can excite children and the talk of the quantum workforce being so small, hundreds yeah. of people, right? So that's where I've really been focused lately, so. Thank you for letting me ref. Yeah, man. There was something I saw in the news uh, yesterday, I think, just when I came back from my four-day retreat in the woods with no internet, which was amazing, by the way. And I highly encourage anyone that can do that to go do that. Um, I think there's very few places where you can actually go find somewhere in the United States where you literally have no cell connection, no Wi-Fi, no <laughs> nothing. Um, yeah. I was on a property where you just didn't, like, it was impossible, right? And uh, if you can manage to just turn off your phone over the weekend or something, just kind of recreate that and force it upon yourself. The fortress. I, I, I took that but, from Chad, you know, Chad and his fortress of solitude up there in Canada. 
the running away to the cabin for good yes. ideas as I followed him a ton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I saw when I came back, just this whole quantum news, I saw um, there was some bit of news, somebody, I can't, I can't recall who it was, but there was some quantum computing breakthrough that um, I guess it was maybe Turing complete and it was able to solve some kind of calculation that a traditional, um, you know, HPC high performance computing system it would take like 10,000 years and it was able to solve it in eight minutes. Yeah. Um, so Sycamore it, it, apparently achieved that. And then IBM said they didn't. And then just this week in China, uh, they created a 58 or 65. 56, it was, I it thought. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah it was like barely that. bigger than Sycamore. And, and basically, if you looked at it, look at a picture of it. And then just this morning, I forget who announced in America this morning. Both of them, though, you see the scientists tinkering with things and you look. I mean, you work in product development, Aaron. Look at what they're presenting. <laughs> you know, I get it. It's crazy. Science is messy and doesn't quite yeah. become productized. But when you look at what they're creating and it's only 56 qubits and it's covering the floor of a gymnasium with lasers, you're kind of yeah. like, uh, yeah, we got a little while till this gets here, you know? Yeah, but think about early computers that were the size of a gymnasium themselves, you know? And yeah. then, yep. you know, we got to smaller, like uh, SUV-sized 53 meg hard drives. Right. <laughs> smash, I smashed the hard drive. When I was at NASA, my first job was taking the sledgehammer. Uh, the hard drives wouldn't fit in the degausser. And so, oh my God, what an, I mean, I, I was born into the age of the CD-ROM, not respecting floppies. So to see something like that was, we've come a long way. And that's why when I talk about these things being decades out, I used to be super self-conscious about it. Like, oh my God, anybody that talks about the singularities automatically, well, I already have mental health issues. I'm dealing with trauma and working my way through that. But you don't want to be stigmatized and labeled there as, you know, the guy having the AI bug. Lex Friedman made that totally acceptable, you know? So yeah. it's, people can think what they want of me, but to fantasize about 10 and 20 years from now, uh, from now to bring a utopian vision that visions can be executed and become realities. If we put Skynet in front of all of our children, what do you think we're going to get? Well, look at the NSCAI. <laughs> I mean, sure. Come on. Remember our last time we were talking? I just want yeah. Biden to listen. Now look, every podcast, I mean, it's great. David Kumashiro's on everything, basically. 250 billion already went to fund it. The, the Academy, the new National Guard, the new Digital Corps is being voted on in October, I believe. And then the next, the West Point for AI is coming, uh, I think in February of next year for vote. So I mean, this stuff is slamming yeah. the pipe because of the progress. And th those of y'all that may not have caught uh, what he said right there, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. We've talked about it on the show before, as uh, as Bunks just mentioned, but um, definitely, I mean, go read the report if you can. Uh, you can just go to nscai.gov and you'll see the 2021 final report there. And I love white papers. Forgive me. I'm not trying to spread that as a dystopia. You got to no, remember yeah. half the white paper is competition. If you want, just skip the first half of the white paper on Terminators and all that. And, I mean, it's very pertinent now that you're seeing articles <laughs> hit the Washington Post about, you know, the patrolling ATV robotic guns that the Israeli deployed and the HK killer, you know, droids that finally have been proven out in Turkey to have hunted people and killed them. So we're at the precipice of part one being important. But part two is the best written white paper of my career 
right? Like I've never read something with such pertinent recommendation. I come from social work. My first year is in social work. Everything. I'd literally sit in virtualization design meetings and say, how is this going to help humans and people? How is it going to keep my friends' jobs? You know, I'd be counseling them. Please get into this now that you no longer have to care about this. That's just the way my heart's always worked. And when you look yeah. at what the NFCAI is trying to do, I think a lot of people think that I might be like some type of Schmidt fanboy. Schmidt has some questionable stuff, but he's also pragmatic and looking at, we have to do something now. Regulate. I mean, the AIA may not be it. The Artificial Act, Artificial Intelligence Act in Europe that's being signed in is draconian and over-regulated potentially, but we have to do something, folks. So anyway, that's my piece. There you go. Dude, I wonder how you sleep at night. <laughs> uh, I love... Well, or do you? Do you not? A CPAP. A CPAP puts me straight oh, to sleep. Go. So I don't know if I need it anymore for apnea, but if I put the mask over my face, I go into a coma. So that's how you see my late night tweets and then coma. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jeremy, you still with us, bud? You got anything I else am. before I shut it down? I do. You know, I, so I, I am still with you. I'm going to bring it back. And actually, Aaron, if it's all right, I'm going to throw it to you. So here's my, here's my quandary. I'm looking for you to, to give me some perspective. I'm a, okay. I'm a parent of a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And, you know, we, we've been pretty conscientious with how we, how we, you know, what technology we um, give our kids access to, you know, everything from like how much, how often they're able to like FaceTime with their grandparents who don't live locally to like, you know, how much TV time they get. And, you know, lately, you know, I've been diving way into spatial computing. So we've got a couple of HMDs around and I'll be doing a lot of work in VR and my five-year-old very interested in that, you know, and sometimes we Chromecast it to the flat screen and, and she really wants to put the headset on. And, you know, my wife and I are, we're, we've been pretty stringent about what technology we give our girls access to. I'm interested, you know, as a parent yourself of older children, how you have navigated that. And if you have any advice to myself or listeners that have young kids that are sort yeah. of grappling with like, what do you, what are, what are those, what are those? And I know it's a conversation everyone navigates themselves as parents, but I'm interested in your perspective because you're so you know deeply enmeshed and you've kind of gone through a lot of that yourself. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's a vortex that's going to get them eventually. And it's pretty, I have a pretty simple, um, kind of view of it is I try to limit it as much as I possibly can, right? Especially the super young ones, you know, but we did a ton of research when our oldest was born. Um, she was born back in 2009, right? So screens weren't even as, um, you know, as commonplace. It wasn't back then. It wasn't as common to walk into a room and always find somebody looking at a phone. Now it's just an expectation. If you walk into a room and there's somebody in there by themselves, they're going to be looking at their phone or they're going to be looking at, you know, a PC or a TV or something like that, unless they are actively preparing dinner or <laughs> playing table tennis or something. Um, all that to say is I'm a little bit torn, but I always, I try to side on the uh, side of reducing screen time or limiting it completely uh, for little, little kids, right. And then slowly introduce it with limited time um, as they get older. I think there's a lot of interesting things around um, understanding the concepts of digital worlds and having a, a spatial view that you can't get unless you play in those worlds really young, you know, or not, not really young, but, but as you grow up, as your brain develops, right. There are, I mean, people, well, whatever, I don't know how far I want to go down that, but I mean, playing games like GoldenEye has made me, really sharp in navigating places in the real world, you know, cause I can, I can get a mental like mind map of places I've been or when I go somewhere and I've got concepts of how multi-layered things work 
when I'm, when I can't even actually physically see them. Um, so I'm probably throwing a lot at you there, but no, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, If they're under two, if they're under two, I would say never show them a screen. Yeah. (laughs) That was the approach we took with my five-year-old, but now that my five, that my two-year-old's growing up in a house with my five-year-old. So it's hard to be much earlier with my five-year-old, but I I do appreciate the Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Kurt. I want to let you finish. Sorry, I'm so bad at interrupting. I try so hard. Go, go ahead and finish. Uh, and then I have something I really want to no, offer. No, I'm good. I was just going to I was gonna start talking about GoldenEye with Aaron. So yours is probably much more relevant. <laughs> well, I can talk about GoldenEye all day too. I mean, half of what we do for marketing is putting together retro consoles and putting in FPGAs into them and raffles and all that. So point is... Um, Which we need we to wrestle. do, by the way. Yes. <laughs> cool. Kurt sent um, me a whole box of uh, stuff that we need to give away on the show. And today would have been a fantastic day to do it, but we kind of put this together last minute. We should walk through what's in there. The next show I'll, or next one I hop on, I'll walk through, you know, the components. I don't think a lot of people understand how much is packaged into some of those things. But anyway, uh, the focus on children with, uh, with our oldest being diagnosed at two, um, it was made very aware to us that digital addiction is a massive issue and a massive enabler within uh, the neurodiverse community. Um, So, uh, we used iPads as young as two years old to go through social stories with him, to record him and then show him how he was behaving. Not like a shame type of thing, but um, it's, it's hard to explain social stories. But the point is we integrated technology at the least minimum uh, that we could, right? We, we barely would allow them in front of a computer. It, it baffled so many of my friends and family considering the high tech interests that I have. Um, but I feel like we made a mistake there. Their keyboarding skills, now that they're 10, 12 and 14, Keyboarding skills are pretty low, which, you know, we will have new human interface devices here soon, but it's not as, you know, I tell my oldest autistic son that you're, you're probably not going to drive, right? The rates of crashing are super high with, with, uh, you know, with extreme ADHD, autism, things like that. Accidents are through the roof. Um, our Tesla is on pre-order. Cybertruck will be ready for pickup, hopefully in six to 12 months. FS regardless there. of that, it's it's arguable that some of our kids, like Jeremy's kids, may never drive. Period. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and the example is like for my son, like his life is in danger because of this. I want the truck to drive him, and it's way more important to me that he has access to the world. He can get into a vehicle and go see and do what he wants to do. So that's one example of technology fully embraced. But some of the others, you know, they start Minecraft, Microsoft Minecraft Python coding on Monday. I'm trying to find their passions by letting them touch the world. We gave them an Xbox for a week, first time here recently, and holy God, the addictive. I mean, I'm an ex-substance abuse counselor for juvenile delinquents, so it's hard for me not to look past addictive uh, signs and red flags and things like that. So to my point, because I'm trying to push so much digital media to 9 to 13-year-olds, um, I probably should you know, justify why. I believe that the building of the metaverse, metaverses, the omniverse, whether it's NVIDIA's or Epic's or whoever, uh, whether it's as simple as Minecraft, um, the omniverse build out, metaverse build out, VR, XR, you know, all that, the, the XRs, um, and the ability to have no code, low code at their fingertips. If you've been in a room with kids 10 to 14 touching uh, automation of coding and writing, you realize they pick up with it really quick. They talk to my computer as they work back and forth on GPT-3. Now, I sit over their shoulder all the time. It's why I didn't have a lot of social life. It's why I didn't have outside of the 70 hours at work, it was my children. And I realized with the disabilities adds a little bit more, but my children were introduced to video games on an iPad playing Dragon Warrior with me. And then it was, you know, Final Fantasy 1 
on a switch or something or whatever. We slowly worked and played together and it allowed me to be in the room for things that crop up like competition, like um, wanting to look up secrets on YouTube for the game and then end up getting inundated with, with, with uh, the word Trump or something. Who knows the stuff they come back to me with sometimes know what they're watching, obviously, but if you can, and it's hard to ask parents to do this, but integrate with them, find the steam project, right? Insert that art into STEM, shove it in there and go find something that kids love. Cause I guarantee you that passion for VR that can be put, turned into something very, very positive. If you're right in that world with her, or him, I forget what you said, but you know, um, so that, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm coming from an angle that we have to enable these kids. When you read McKinsey reports and, and all the reports coming out around joblessness and that we won't even identify 60% of the careers that are 10 years away. The jobs in 2030 are almost unidentifiable to us mm-hmm. as a human race right now. All marketing firms say that pretty much. And yeah. so, so they're going to be reinventing worlds. Now's the time to put them in. And it's the time to teach practice because as a substance abuse counselor, having addiction issues myself earlier in life, you know, lots of things. These are biological things that are hard to control. The more that we can teach our children, we have food companies, you know, bringing in psychologists for bliss point, injecting sugar into every product. What do you do with your child? Do you educate them and tell them you're literally being poisoned if you if you follow this processed lifestyle? Like, how do you do you hide it from them? Like my kids ask me all the time, why did why did uh, the other generations destroy our earth? That's mm. a little young. Ten year old is a little young for that, but they chose to educate themselves. I didn't force it on them. They wanted to know. So it's a, it's a fine balance and I'm kind of all over the place, but I really feel it's important for kids to have mentorship right now. We talk about adult mentorship. Kids need mentorship too, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Really great insight. Thanks Kurt. And thanks Aaron, both of you guys. I, I appreciate it. It's great. Of course. All right. Uh, I think we are probably at a point where we should shut this show down. And um, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. And I hope you all have a uh, an awesome Friday. And we will talk soon. Thanks, Aaron. You too. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Kurt. All right. See you guys. Thank you, Jeremy.